0: Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the, go- not to the Gospel of Mark, but to the book of Acts. So used to saying in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been journeying through that for a year and a half. Uh, but we'll actually be looking at the book of Acts this morning. If you are in the threes and fours class, thank you for worshiping with us. You are dismissed to your class now. And if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. And uh, Nicholas Barnfield is going to bring you a copy of God's Word. If you would like a hard copy to look on. If you're a note taker this morning, and you're one of those type A personalities that you love taking notes, but you especially love taking notes when the speaker gives you the thing to write down, then today's your day. Like you've been dreaming of this, you've got 27 pens in your purse for this moment. Now's the time. Today, we'll be discussing four questions, and then for each question, there'll be at least four answers. So that is 20 things to write down. Uh, That you will be guided to write down So get out a notepad and a pen if you're ready for that we are in acts chapter 11 and we're taking that break from the gospel of mark And our journey through it for several reasons. One of the reasons we're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark is we have been recognizing, celebrating seven years since the beginnings of St. Rose Community Church. August marks seven years since First Baptist Church closed their doors and the team began to assemble uh, to plant St. Rose Community Church. And so lots has happened in the last seven years, so praise the Lord. Yeah, that's an awesome thing, right? So we've been celebrating that, thinking about that, and also... Uh, since uh, since this seven years has passed, and it's a good biblical number, the Lord has been uh, super gracious and the church has been gracious uh, to offer me a, a time of rest from preaching. Uh, it's been a long go of preaching and disaster relief and hurricanes and, you know, uh, pandemic and... School, all kinds of things, and so I will be, uh, after next week, next week will be my last Sunday, and then for three months, you'll be hearing from other voices on Sunday morning. Other people will be preaching the word, and they'll pick up in the Gospel of Mark, where we left off, and continue on all the way until our Advent series, in which I will return to... The pulpit after a season of rest and uh, refocusing on the Lord and on our family. So, with that coming up, and with sort of taking a step back, uh, that I'm going to get to do, I wanted us as a church to take a step back and think about our mission as a church, and why we exist, Um, what our mission statement is and how that comes into reality in our church, and why we have that mission statement, uh, because it's grounded in the Bible. So the way that we've sort of looked at the mission statement is by first looking at the church at Antioch. Antioch was a church plant uh, that came into being as the Christians fled persecution from Jerusalem and began sharing Jesus in a new city where the Christian movement uh, took root. So we've been looking at this for the past couple weeks, and now we will look at it once again, beginning this time in verse 23. And as we read, we'll be looking for evidence of disciple-making. Verse 23. So this is when Barnabas comes and sees what's happening in Antioch, these new Christians believing in Jesus in a difficult place, and this is what it says. When he, when Barnabas came... And he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met With the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, there were in the church, I'm sorry, uh, I'm jumping up to chapter 13, verse 1 now. Chapter 13, verse 1. We're back in Antioch. We're not sure how much time has, uh, has passed between chapter 11 and chapter 13, but now we zero in on Antioch again after the story drifted back to Jerusalem again. In verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. All right, let's, let's pause and pray uh, before we dive in this morning. Father, um, you have done Miraculous miracles to get us in this room in this moment. For 2,000 years, you have made grace visible through the ministry of local churches who've made disciples, who've loved the Lord, who've planted churches, who've done it all by your grace and for your glory alone, God. We are the byproduct of 2,000 years of Christians who believed that it was their responsibility to make disciples not only of every nation, but of every generation. And we stand on the shoulders of faithful men and women whom you've used. And God, we come to you this morning just asking that you would continue to do what you've done for 2,000 years, that you would continue to call the people for yourself, to offer forgiveness, to offer grace, to offer life and joy and eternal life, and that you would do it through your servants in this place, in this community and that the good news of Jesus and that the disciple-making mission would go forth from St. Rose Community Church to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the ages, Father. So we come this morning, Lord, and I pray that we would be encouraged as we look at the mission of making disciples as seen in the, book, in the, the church of Antioch and in the whole Bible. We pray that we'd be encouraged because as we look at the scriptures, we would see pictures of our own lives. I remember growing up, Lord, where I just felt that when I looked at the scriptures, it was so disconnected from the Christian life I experienced. Lord, I pray that that would not be the case for members of St. Rose. That when they read the scriptures, they would find familiar scenes of your work to make disciples. Encourage us this morning, convict us this morning. If there are people in this room not on the mission of making disciples, oh Lord, would they see the beauty and the glory and the joy that's in following a Jesus who wants us to see his face all the more every day. We pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Last half of the sentence. This big phrase sticks out to almost every Bible reader as they're working through the book of, the, of Acts. And it's this sentence where it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word Christian is the primary word that we use to describe someone whom we believe has saving faith in Jesus Christ, is it not? That's sort of the common vernacular, is so-and-so a Christian, or hello, I'm a Christian. But apparently, before this moment in the history of the Christian movement, Christian was not the word that they used to identify one another. In fact, Christian was a word that the outside world designated the believers with. It was actually somewhat derogatory. Oh, that's that little Christ over there. The person who always talks about Christ, always wants to obey Christ, always is trying to live life like Christ. There's a lot we can learn from the word Christian. we talk about that in a little bit. But the question I want to ask is, okay, if Christian was not the primary word, if in Acts 11 is when it was first used, then what was the word that the apostles used before that word? How did you designate someone as being part of the people of God versus not being a part of the people of God in the Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 11 season? Well, in the text, verse 26, it seems that the word that Luke is most comfortable with to describe what you are, if you say that you're a Christian, the word he's most comfortable with and familiar with is the word disciple, right? Verse 26, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In fact, notice how Luke is so much more comfortable with that word that even in the next few sentences, if you look down in verse 29, as he's describing them come together to make a decision how they were going to provide support to another church, he says in verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So Luke chooses to use continue to use the word disciple even when the rest of the world has sort of labeled them Christians. Now, why? Why was disciple the chosen vernacular to describe what a saved person is, what a person of God is? Well, Jesus actually if Acts 11 is the first time the word's being used, you don't see Jesus ever using the word. Christian, what word does Jesus use? Disciple, right? Disciple. In fact, I think Luke is just using the vernacular that he's been passed down from Matthew 28, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, This is what you're supposed to do. Go therefore and make disciples. So the Antioch church is a result of a Matthew 28 Great Commission, a command from Jesus to participate in a disciple-making mission. So, this sermon is not like most sermons that we work through. Normally we're working phrase by phrase, sort of working through a whole paragraph. But rather what we're doing is we're lifting up a scene and we're turning it on different angles and we're asking questions of it, okay? So we're asking questions of the way they understood what a disciple was and what making disciples was all about. So we're going to ask four questions today first question we're going to ask is this what is a disciple how would they define how should we define what a disciple is now if you are brand new to christianity this is a great day to be here right because this might be things you're hearing for the first time and you may need to wrestle as i preach you may need to wrestle with whether this describes you whether you are a disciple If you are a Christian here and you're like, I've heard this a hundred times, praise the Lord, because this is a reminder of this is what you are, and this is what you're trying to lead other people to be, right? So what is a disciple? That's the first question, and when we ask that question, what is a disciple, we're not asking something different from what is a Christian. There's not Christians, and then like level two is disciple, right? No, 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 there's just disciples who, because of the way they live their lives, the outside world said, those are Christians. Those are people who look like Christ. So essentially we're asking, what does a born-again, legitimate, genuine believer in Jesus, follower of Jesus, what are they? What are their traits? So I'm going to provide you with four essential traits for what a disciple is. Note-takers, this is your time to shine, baby. What is a disciple? Number one, disciples are believers, Now, this should come as no surprise to you. To to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. When the persecuted Christians come from Jerusalem, they arrive in Antioch, they come preaching the message of the Lord, and the text says that some believed. They accepted the message that was presented to them. Either Jesus was the Lord of the universe, who came to earth and died for the sins of mankind, or he wasn't. Either he rose from the dead, or he didn't. Either he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures, or he was not. The doorway into discipleship for these Antioch people was first and foremost real belief in the person and work of Jesus. And if that was true, then it had major ramifications for their lives. If there is an eternity waiting on the other side of death, That every human faces. And if Jesus is the difference maker. For that eternity. Then it changes the way. I now live my life here and now. So disciples. Must first and foremost. At a foundational level. Be those who believe. A message about Jesus. But initial faith. Is only genuine and real. If that faith. Overflows into life change, right? Genuine faith in the personal work of Jesus must lead to the daily following Jesus. If you're standing on train tracks and the train is coming and you believe the train is coming and you believe it's better for you not to be standing on train tracks as the train is coming, then what, what does that faith produce in you? Desire to move, right? <laughs> faith genuinely, right, leads to some form of action, some form of of work, something that you now want or do. And one of the things that faith does, and this will be answer number two, what is a disciple? Disciples are believers. Number two, disciples are learners. And this is a little bit of a repeat from last week, but you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not also want to be a learner of this Jesus, it's essential to the word disciple. We are followers of a teacher, and we have much to learn. We are finite, and that means that we, we just we don't know everything, right? Teenagers, amen? We don't know everything, right? We don't know everything. And we are sinful in such a way that we are actually prone to believe the wrong things. So not only is our knowledge limited... But our hearts are are of such a condition that we would rather believe wrong things than right things, right? We must be, if we're to be a disciple of Jesus, we must want to be corrected by Jesus. We must want to be taught by Jesus. We must want to grow in understanding. I had an important conversation with my four-year-old yesterday. He has gotten into the habit, and, and I can, he's still in the baby's class, so I can still use him as analogies. So once he hits five, there's no more analogies uh, for him. So, what, is he in here right now? Oh, he has friends. Don't tell Owen I'm talking about him. All right. <laughs> Owen. <laughs> Listen, I'll, just, just a quick story. It was beautiful. It was great. He responded wonderful. But he's gotten into this habit where whenever you tell him something that he doesn't want or he doesn't want to hear, his immediate reaction is he actually l- physically plugs his ears, <laughs> like physically. Like, Owen. Oh, it's time to clean your room, and he <laughs> does this, right? And so, and it's cute for like three <laughs> seconds, right? But, but yesterday, after the parenting seminar, and, and I had all these things on my mind about how to steward that moment, and so, so we sent him to his room, and I came in there, and I began to ask questions of Owen. I said, Owen, oh, why? Uh, what just happened, right, and he said, I closed my ears, and I said, what were you thinking when you did that, and he said, I didn't want to hear you, (laughs) right, (laughs) and I was like, I was like, okay, and then what was the result of that action, he said, "I, I got in trouble, and I said, do you remember the story of Adam and Eve, and he said, yeah, and I said, what did Adam and Eve do, and he said, they ate the fruit, and I said, what did God tell them to do, he said, he told them not to, and I said, so did Eve close her ears, and he said, yeah, and I said, is that why you're closing your ears, you do the same thing that Eve did? And I said, Oh, and do you know what? Do you know that Daddy does the same thing? That every human being on the planet, that we're born with this natural desire to close our ears when true things are spoken that confront what we want to believe. That's what every human being struggles with. But Christians who follow Jesus, they follow a teacher. So when you become a Christian, you become a disciple, you become a person who, who fights the urge to close your ears, right? You become a person who wants to open your ears even if it hurts. You want to open your ears to what the truth is because you know the truth is better than the lie you want to believe. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who wants to learn from the teacher Christians break the habit that all sinful people give themselves over to and Barnabas recognizes as he shows up in Antioch there's new Christians in the room he recognizes what they need most right now is truth taught to them with ears now open they've got to hear what god has said is saying so he gets. To, we see in Acts uh, chapter 11, what's his first move? Let's get Paul to come in here, and what's he going to do for a year? He's going to teach to people with open ears who want to hear true things from the scriptures and and barnabas doesn't just make that up he doesn't just think oh man this is a great idea uh this is going to be novel this is going to be new no barnabas is taking straight from the command of jesus go therefore and make disciples of all nations in matthew 28 baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and then what are we supposed to do teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i'm with you always to the ends of the age if you're a disciple you are also a learner Always desiring to hear the teaching of the God who has saved you. Now, when we say that we're a learner, disciples are not just learners of content. Disciples are learners of a lifestyle, right? The word disciple was not a uniquely Christian word in Jesus's day the word literally meant pupil or learner but not just learner of content to be a disciple was to be a follower of a particular teacher's way of life right so to become a disciple of a Jewish rabbi was not just to sit and listen to a public teaching and then go home to become a disciple of a Jewish rabbi was to learn their way of living and this is why you see Jesus's disciples not just showing up at a location to hear Jesus talk and then go back and live their lives. Rather, what you see is them living life with Jesus. They're wanting to learn not just what he says. They're wanting to learn how he says it, what he does in his downtime, how he eats a meal. They're wanting to learn an entire lifestyle, how his verbal teaching translates into their everyday living. So in other words, to become a disciple is to be a believer, to be a learner, and then Thirdly, disciples are followers. Disciples are followers. We are not just addicted to new knowledge because it puffs up our our sentiment. It puffs up our ability to know things. No, no, no. We want to be learners so that we can be better lovers of God, right? We want to be learners so that we can be better reflections of the God who is saved us right the gospel hits antioch and the gospel of jesus christ changes the way the community related to one another right jews and gentiles now fellowshipping with one another was an insane reality only because they heard the gospel and said what does that mean for this division between us and the conclusion was that division has to go away right Jesus changed the way they spent their money. They're giving resources for the help of other churches. Changed the way they spent their time. They're prioritizing, gathering together with other disciples. They are not cognitive learners of Jesus, but rather practical followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, they want to obey his commands, all his commands, and especially commands that Jesus puts in very prominent places, especially the command... To make more disciples barnabas shows up into the church and he is glad so glad that he gives the next year of his life to that place now we can read super quickly over details like that in the scriptures but but we need to pause and ask why would barnabas leave his home To live in Antioch for a year. Why would Paul abandon all of his relationships in Tarsus and the life that he had for him there to now come to Antioch for at least a year? Why did the Christians fleeing persecution in Jerusalem immediately begin to tell people about Jesus in Antioch? That could cost them a new location, right? What's driving them forward to keep proclaiming Jesus and trying to help other people follow Jesus well i think that they understood that to be a disciple yes it's to be a believer yes it's to be a learner yes it's to be a follower but answer number four under this question disciples are disciplers disciples are disciplers if being a disciple of jesus means i want to be like jesus i want to follow in jesus's footsteps then making disciples has to be a byproduct of that What do I mean by make disciples? I mean helping other people to believe, to learn, to follow, and to make more disciples. Jesus led people to follow him, right? For three years, he walks with people, invites people to follow him in his every way of life, and then he tells those people, go make disciples. In other words, go do what I just did, right? So so being a follower of Jesus, part of that definition, therefore, then, is to help other people follow Jesus. There is no category in the Bible for someone who says, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I have no desire to make any more disciples of Jesus. You have just made a nonsensical statement. I'm a disciple of Jesus, which means I make disciples, but I don't make any disciples. In the definition of being a disciple of Jesus is the desire to want others to know Jesus, love Jesus, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus better, and learn how to make more disciples of Jesus. You, in this room, you should want your spouse to believe in Jesus. Amen? Amen. You should want your children to believe in Jesus. What is parenting except intense discipleship all day every day? That's what it is, right? You will want your neighbor or your coworker or your friends to believe in Jesus. When Barnabas looks at the church in Antioch and he says this: "Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What's the steadfast purpose? At least part of that steadfast purpose is making disciples. I had a young person going through our membership process a couple years ago ask me this question. I wrote it down. They said this. I have noticed that you at St. Rose talk about disciple making a lot. But she said, but other churches I've been to make other things more of a priority. Is this just your church's thing? I know there's a verse that commands us to make disciples, but is it okay that other churches focus primarily on different kinds of ministries? You know, I mean, disciple, is disciple-making just kind of one aspect, and you could take it or leave it. There's also a lot of other good things you could be doing. And it's a good question, and it leads us to question number two. Why make disciples? Why was this the primary mission? We see it being the primary mission even when Paul leaves Antioch in Acts chapter 14, Listen to what he's traveling around doing. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. He says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, i.e. helped many people to become believers, learners, followers, and disciple makers. When they'd made many disciples, they turned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Why is that what Paul did? All right, note-takers, here's four reasons. (laughs) Why make disciples? Number one, God created us to make disciples. Essential to our humanity, our reason for being. We were made to spread the image of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. In your humanity is built in a desire to influence A desire to have meaningful purpose in the world. And it was a desire that was placed in you by God and is twisted by sin in a lot of ways, but given to you by God as early as Genesis. I mean, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he creates him male and female, he created them. God blesses them and God says to them, Be fruitful multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, over the birds, the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's, here's day one marching orders for your essential humanity-ness. Like, what is it you're made to do but to fill the earth with more pictures of the glory of the God who created you? That's what you're made to do. Multiply, fill the earth with image bearers of God. Now the problem is, sin comes into the world and corrupts humanity so that they no longer reflect the image the way they're supposed to. So what, how, do, how do we now fulfill this God-given purpose that was given in Genesis? It's no longer just like, hey, get a family, have babies, fill the earth with lots of my image bearers. Now there's image bearers all over the world with broken images. <laughs> They're not reflecting the glory of God. So how do we get them to reflect the glory of God? We lead them to Jesus. And we teach them to believe and follow and learn. And to make more disciples. The the disciple making mission is a reinstitution of God's original design for humans. When, God, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, or when he says, you'll be my, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, what's he doing but reinstating humanity's purpose from Genesis chapter one, verse 27? Why do we exist? A glory bigger than ourselves, right? Something that's gonna last into eternity. We hunger for that kind of significance in our lives. And we find it in the wrong places, where we find satisfaction for that hunger for significance is not the career we want, not the family we want, not the money we want to make. It's in the participating, in God's mission to spread His glory to the ends of the ages. Why make disciples? God created us to make disciples. Answer number two: Jesus commanded us to make disciples, right? I mean, that's kind of the easy one. Jesus said so, right? Matthew 28 is the final marching orders for humanity. Go make disciples. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Disciple-making mission was Jesus' last words, and it it was his first words. In Matthew 4, 19, when he approaches these dudes, he says, follow me. In other words, become a disciple. And then he says, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you someone who goes after other people and helps them follow me. Your, fish, your fishing career is now secondary to a new vocation. You're not gonna, you don't have to quit fishing altogether, but it's secondary to a new vocation, which is leading more people to follow me. Why do we do it? God made us to do it. Number two, Jesus commanded us to do it. Number three, love demands disciple-making. Love demands disciple-making when asked what the most important commandment was, Jesus was crystal clear. The greatest commandment, and we talked about this last week, the greatest commandment for you to obey as a Christian person is to love God, right? And the second is to love others, right? If love is the greatest commandment, then disciple-making is the clearest application of that commandment. It's the clearest application of love. If you love someone, what do you want for them but the best for them, right? Parents, you love your children. That means what you desire for your children is the absolute best for them, right? No compromises. You want what is legitimately and eternally best for them. Your love makes you to desire that for them, right? No one says, I love them and I want them to suffer, right? (laughs) Nobody. Love leads to your desire to their best ultimate end. What is best for them but eternal life? What is best for someone but to know the God of the universe from whom every blessing flows? What is best for them but forgiveness, joy, peace, eternally found only in Jesus. What is best for them but to know that the sin they're plunging themselves into leads to destruction? What is best, I've said this before, what is best for Amelia? She, she, any power tool she has an attraction to, right? My love for her leads me to jerk the circular saw away, right? Even through her screaming and crying. And accusing me of being unloving in that moment. Love leads us to do what is best for someone. And what is best for someone is always a closer walk with Jesus. Love demands disciple making. And I'll just be honest with you. It is absolutely baffling to me. When a Christian young person says, I love someone. I want to marry this someone. But they care very little about their spiritual condition. Either they do not love that someone truly, or they do not believe what they say they believe about sin, God, and eternity. Right? I mean, th- this is a dynamic that we've seen. In our church over and over again. And if that's you and and you were a Christian and married a non-Christian, this is not to heap judgment upon you. Gosh, God can use amazing things. I've heard testimonies of God doing amazing things. And there's no reason to look back and heap guilt upon yourself because of some decision that you made in the past. But there is reason for right now to rethink about the way you show love. And the way you show love is to not give someone yourself primarily The way you show love is to give someone the Lord Jesus primarily. The best thing I can do for you as a pastor, and when I preach the sermon, is not to give you more of me, right? That's not a loving thing. The best thing I can do as a pastor is to give you more of the Lord, more of what he has said, not what I have said. And that's the best way we love our children. That's the best way we love our friends. That's the best way we love our neighbors. That's the best way we love our Spouses, Why do we make disciples? God made us to do it, Jesus commanded to do it, love demands us to do it, and lastly, joy is found in disciple making. Remember, Barnabas shows up in Antioch, sees the miracle working grace of God happening in people's lives, and it says, and he was glad. Something happened in his heart that every human wants to happen in their heart all the time. That something was joy gladness happiness in seeing the God of the universe working miracles in other people the growth of others in the Lord brought real joy and this is something we see happening in the scriptures over and over and over again first Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2 Paul says we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God the Father your faith your labor of love steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ we know brothers loved by God he's chosen you our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power in the Holy Spirit and full of conviction he's just recounting the experience of seeing these people come to faith in Jesus and he constantly gives thanks to God for being a part of it. In First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes this of the disciples that he made in Thessalonica. He says, What is our hope of joy, our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? If you are here this morning and you are miserable, you feel as if your life has no meaning, no direction, you feel as if your job is just a place where you go daily to die a little more, then maybe your job is for more than just a paycheck. Maybe there are people around who need the Lord. Maybe you're called to something more in this life than making money, hanging with your family, and trying to survive until retirement kicks in, right? Don't get me wrong, there is great difficulty in pouring yourself out for helping other people follow Jesus. But there's a joy found here that cannot be found anywhere else. In making disciples, you are forced to draw near to the Lord for help. And there is always more joy and nearness to the Lord. In making disciples, you are forced to know the word of the Lord more as you help someone else learn. And there is joy in knowing the word. In making disciples, you have a front row seat to miracles in the lives of others. And there is joy in seeing the activity of God. If you're joyless... One of the answers I'm always going to give to you is, go make some disciples. Now, I I don't say that because it's going to be like a vacation or a walk at the park. I say this because there is joy in walking with the Lord. And what is the Lord always doing but drawing people to himself? So participate in what God's doing in the lives of other people. And then see the grace of God and be glad like Barnabas was glad. So all this sounds good. Um, Third question, though, where does discipleship happen? Where does it happen? What's the context look like? And you guys are really going to have to listen faster to get through the rest of this sermon. When the first people turned to the Lord in the book of Acts, their discipleship began to take place in a variety of contexts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 verse 46, you can flip there if you want, we see the first Christian church coming alive. And what do we see them doing? Verse 46, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word church, right? Right? literally means assembly or gathering of people gathering in the first century became essential to what a church was right the, the, what the people of god were marked by was by this regular coming together this regular assembling this 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 coming together with Jesus being the source or the reason of their coming together. And they came together in different ways. This is why in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, Barnabas gets there, and he doesn't call this group just a random group of believers scattered all over Antioch. What does he call them in verse 26? It says, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many of people. They were a people committed to gathering one another in different ways. In Acts 2, you saw them gathering in the temple and in the home, so in larger groups and in smaller groups. The church was marked by a continuous gathering, and it's in the gathering with other Christians where this disciple-making work takes place. So let me give you very quickly four answers to the question, where does discipleship happen? Number one, congregational gathering. What we're doing right now, like this moment, isn't, that, isn't this neat, right? This moment, we're doing what we're preaching about, okay? So this is, this is like taking place in this moment, right? We gathered in this room to learn the word together, sing the word together, pray the word together. We see and experience the word of God together in baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Everything about this holy moment was designed to equip you to be a better follower of Jesus and help other people follow Jesus. The author of Hebrews argues that when times get tough in your Christian life, that's when you hunker down on gathering with other Christians, not when you pull back from gathering with other Christians. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, the author says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I mean, it feels like the world is ending. Go to church, right? (laughs) I mean, it's essentially what the author of Hebrews is saying. Do you see how like a pandemic where you're not allowed to do that is like the perfect concoction to destroy people spiritually? It's like, hey, it looks like the world's ending. Don't go to church. Stay home. Have no interactions with other people who will help you grow spiritually. The context of discipleship is in the corporate gathering together. But if we reduce discipleship, right, if we reduce this process to only what happens in this room on Sunday mornings, we will miss so much of what disciple making is. This moment is essential. But it is not the only moment that has to happen in a life where you're wanting to follow Jesus. There must be layers of contexts in which you are being exposed to truth and exposing others to truth. So congregational gathering, but let me add another one. Where does discipleship happen? Communal one another teaching. Communal one another teaching. You do not need just a big room full of Christians... Where you arrive late, listen to a sermon, and leave early. That is not discipleship. That is listening to content. You will not be discipled, nor will you disciple anyone if that's the extent of your involvement in Christian community. Acts tells us the first century church became not just a -a once-a-week gathering, but they became a gathering of people in a variety of ways, Constantly in the temple, in the homes, it became more than a discipleship moment. It became a discipleship community where together we're all the time teaching one another what the Lord's teaching me, right? Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Second person plural, not just individual. You, the word of Christ dwells in you people. Richly teaching and admonishing one another in all Wisdom, what are we to do? You're supposed to teach each other, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Why do I exist as a pastor? I don't exist as a pastor just to be the, the fountainhead of all disciple things, right? Ephesians 4 says that I exist, and one of the things I do in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And it goes on and it says, until everyone attains maturity. So what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to say, disciple each other. Speak true things to each other. Engage in meaningful relationships with one another so that, so that you don't do this all the time. But rather you open this to one another and hear the voice of God. This is the sort of one another communal building that doesn't happen by accident, but it's something you have to work for, especially in our culture. We live in the, one of the most individualistic cultures in the history of the world where our pattern is to go home and shut the door and be in our safe space and never open the ears, right? Never let someone in. So churches do these little things called small groups. We call them community groups. They don't do them just because they want your schedule to be busier, right? Well, the reason that we do community groups is because we want to build into your weekly pattern a context or a space where you're getting in the living room with somebody and talking about something other than the politics or the weather and the sports. We want to build into the rhythm of your life relationships with other people where you're talking about the Bible and talking about what God's doing in your life. That's what community groups is. It's saying our life is about disciple making. It's gotta be more than this moment. It has to infiltrate our homes and our relationships at every level. That's so why we do community groups, why we do one of the reasons that we do prayer services. If you you need a web of relationships from different ages, different backgrounds, you need a village. To help you follow Jesus. I'll say that again. You need a village. To help you follow Jesus. And if you do not have that right. You do not have a web of relationships in this church. Who speak the truth to you. And whom you speak the truth to. It is not everyone else's fault. i gonna say that again. If you do not have that in this church. It is not everyone else's fault. one of the biggest problems that i've seen in the church is that individuals make their own discipleship everybody else's problem nobody reached out to me nobody if you want discipleship relationships on that level you need to go after them and seek them because you would not stand under the burden that you're placing on everybody else to disciple you because you're discipling no one we need to come before the lord And say, Lord, if I want a web of relationships in my life, then what is it you've called me to do to seek them, to find them, to be obedient and faithful in this area? Community group's one way. Prayer service is another way. Don't come to me and say that you're mad that you don't have any relationships in the church if you don't go to community group or prayer service. We've provided two spaces where you can do it. Plug yourself into them. Where does discipleship happen? Congregational gathering, communal one another teaching. I'll hit this one just very briefly. Theological training. Theological training. There was obviously a deeper intentional effort in the church to do more than just help people follow Jesus. They wanted to raise up leaders and warriors in the culture who would help move the church forward. By the time you get to Acts chapter 13, the Antioch church is in such a place that Paul and Barnabas could actually leave to go plant a new church because of the leaders they developed in the Antioch church, right? So, so there's a deeper level of training that the Bible calls us to in many places, right? In Second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to pour into men in such a way that they could teach other people. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, uh, Paul tells Timothy, Put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ, being trained in the words of faith. And the good doctrine you follow. He uses athletic languages. He uses soldier languages. There's a sense in which discipleship is not just a trying to keep you from doing bad things. There's a sense in which there are levels of discipleship where you need to be trained for the onslaught of attacks that you will face in the world. There's a war over worldviews happening in our world right now. The world is waging war on your understanding of sexuality every day. And you cannot settle for a shallow sort of unstudied assumptions about what you believe about biblical sexuality because the world is prepared to take you out and make you believe something other than what God has said. And what that means is that we as Christians have to be more than just passive attenders to church services. We have to be warriors who take it upon ourselves to train for the warfare that is attacking us. The warfare is on our doorstep and on the doorstep of our children. The question is, are we prepared theologically to handle the conversation at work or the conversation with my six-year-old or seven-year-old who has seen things on the internet I'd never want them to see? Some discipleship goes beyond the every week gathering and communal one another teaching. And let me just tell you, we live in a world where we have more access to training and resources than any other Christian on the planet right now, and any other Christian in the history of the world. Don't be afraid of questions. There are answers, and there are good resources that provide those answers. So be a learner seek not just communal, like help me follow Jesus training, th- seek theological training. If you got a question, come to one of the pastors. We will hook you up with more books than you can read on 10 summer vacations. Come to us. We want to equip you for the work of the ministry. And then lastly, where does discipleship happen? Personal disciple making. Personal disciple making. Even Jesus, right? When, if you were to look at Jesus' life, you would see these sort of like contextual layers to the ways in which he poured himself out. He preaches to the crowds. He trains 72. He spends most of his time with 12. He spends even more concentrated time with three, Peter, James, and John. And I think there's a value to this. Every person in here needs different levels, different contexts in which they're growing in the Lord and helping other people we, we we need everything we've talked about thus far, but you know what? We also need we need one or two or three people in our life who will meet with us and dive into the darkest places of our hearts that we don't want anyone else to see. All of us, we need people in our life that are committed to us, and we're committed to them. People who will ask you point blank: Are you struggling with sexual sin? People whom we give license to ask point blank. Have you prayed this week? People who will ask us point blank, what's the sin that you're hiding from everyone else? And who will lovingly confront us and we will lovingly confront them. Are you, have you ever been in a discipleship relationship where that type of personal mutual accountability was present? If you have, if you have been in one of those and it has been a great help to to your spiritual walk, can you just slip up your hand? Like it's just been a game changer. It has been a game changer for me in my life. In fact, it was somebody embracing me as a teenager that really changed the whole trajectory of my life and walked with me like this. This is not something that's going to happen accidentally. It's got to be something engaged in intentionally. And it will make a tremendous Difference last question, and this is going to be super quick, but you got to write fast Last question. Okay, that's cool. I'm convinced this is what i'm supposed to be doing as a christian How do I make a disciple? How do I make a disciple beyond just showing up to the things that a church puts on and trying To speak truth to people? How do I make a disciple? Let me give you let me give you Quick bullet points first identify the need Identify the The need. Look around your life, look around your life, and notice people God's put in your life who need Jesus and who have no one else to share Jesus with them. Or people in your life or people in our church who need to grow in the Lord but aren't connected relationally in such a way that anyone's asking them any of those hard questions. Identify the need. Step two invest in the relationship. Invest in the relationship. So identify someone and then just invest in the relationship with them disciple making is all about relationships jesus walks with 12 guys daily eating meals and hanging out and and there's formal training and then there's informal training so so you have to invest in relationships to earn the right to say anything spiritual to them you have to invest in the relationships to such a degree to where they're finally ready to accept an invitation from you or they invite you but that's the third step is this. Invite them to grow in the Lord with you. You invest in relationship, you want them to grow in Jesus, and then you say, hey, you want to grow in our pursuit of Jesus together? You just invite, say, hey, do you want to, you want to take this friendship to another level where I help you follow Jesus and you help me follow Jesus? And you just say, you, you want to meet once a month, you want to meet once a week, you if there's a particular sin struggle, you want to text each other maybe three times a week just to make sure we're fighting this, you know, what whatever, you invite them into a relationship where this is the expectation. We hang out to enjoy one another and grow in the Lord. Right? Next, interpret the word together. So what do we do when we come together? I don't know, I'm not a I'm not a teacher, I'm not a theologian, I'm not whatever. Interpret you just put a Bible passage before you and you say, what is this what does this mean? And then what does this mean for our lives this week? And you seek to figure it out together. You pray together. And that's it. It You don't need to write a a sermon for a 50-minute manuscript, right? If If you're interested in that, you can go to our website and go to Discipleship Pathways. And we actually have outlines for you right there. How you get a passage before you and what questions you'd ask. And then lastly, you instruct them to repeat the process. You meet with them in the hopes that they're going to help somebody else grow in Jesus at a later date. Right? This is how, let me, let me just say this, and then we'll close. This is how Christianity got to you. This is how Christianity got to you. you are, if you're a Christian in the room, you are eternally saved by the grace of God. You will not suffer an ounce of the wrath of God on the last day and it will be declared over you. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus and you will see his face for the first time face to face and you will have more joy than you ever thought a created thing could experience. And at least one of the reasons why you're there viewing Jesus face to face is because God used somebody else to get the gospel to you. So why would we not be a part of getting the gospel to somebody else and helping them get the gospel to somebody else? Let's pray to that end. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the great commission that you've called us upon, the great salvation that you've given us. And we pray that whatever we are about as a church, whatever we do as a church, that we would be a church who first loves the Lord, and second, out of our love for the Lord, we pray that we would be a church that makes disciples. May that be the mission of our lives and the mission of this church, and speak now to us uh, the true things that we've heard. Speak them again to our hearts and help us to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and respond.